Each afternoon around this time, we'll have uh, a talk. Uh, most of the rest of the day will be uh, involving practice sessions or um, different kinds of training and sometimes short talks, but in the afternoon we'll have a little bit longer talks and probably the one today will be a little longer than the ones we'll have in the next few days because we're wanting to integrate the talks even in this session with some discussion and also with some uh, chance for practices. So I'm going to try to make room. We'll, we'll go with the session for about a little over an hour and we'll, uh, I'll try to bring in some exercises and, and some time for questions. Um, and we'll go into walking meditation after that. Let me invite you, as we're beginning, to listen both to my words, but also listen to the resonance and what's happening with you inside. See if you can do both. It's a, it's a capacity that we'll be emphasizing during the retreat, the capacity to have some quality of inner presence and external attention. It's not easy, right? We're conditioned to be often to be 100% outward or 100% inward. And so I'll just invite that in a light way. See if you can just, in some ways, stay at home while also going out there to listen, okay? So just see what that, see what that means for you. We'll come back to that theme continually uh, during the retreat. So I'd like to talk more generally about the importance of wise and skillful speech in the journey of awakening to greater wisdom and, and love. So I'd like to talk um, first about the importance of speech practice, particularly for the practice of those who like, I think like all of us, are in the world involved with different activities and the importance of speech practice. Then I want to talk a little bit about the nature of awakening, put it in that context. And probably most of the talk uh, focus on some of the traditional resources that we get from the Buddhist tradition. And in the course of the retreat, we'll be, we'll be bringing a number of different resources into our training, into our retreat. And we'll be bringing those in in different, different stages. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. So I'm very appreciative that uh, everyone's here and interested. <laughs> you know, that uh, I think both of us find that an emphasis on speech and communication in quote-unquote spiritual practice is often not found very, very much, right? And I think especially the way uh, Buddhism and emphasis on meditation is developed in the West, uh, I think I'd probably speak for both of us and say it's been somewhat over um, uh, developed in terms of silent meditation. And this leaves us often wondering how we continue with the cultivation of mindfulness, wisdom, loving kindness and so forth in our daily lives. And often 
and I say this partly as a self-critique, sometimes at the end of retreats, we more or less say, oh yes, and speech is quite important. We've done six days of going into deep silence and often very important, powerful experience. And then we more or less, I'm exaggerating a little bit, we often say, speech is really important, daily life is really important, good luck. <laughs> and so I'm appreciative that we can really take these six days and be uh, developing speech practice as a rigorous practice, as something that we can have clear intentions with, a number of different techniques with, and that we can have, and uh, certainly by the end of the time here, a repertoire of practices and understandings that we can bring into all sorts of situations uh, in our lives. And I don't think you mentioned it quite, but one of the ways we're structuring the retreat is that we spend the first two thirds of the retreat on foundational practices. And then the last third, we bring those foundational practices to work with challenging situations. We may do some role plays, do different things that help us to bring the uh, capacities we've developed into something that approaches real life situations where there are challenges of different kinds. And so um, I have found that actually uh, it's possible to have the um, deepest meditative experiences, or certainly many of the most deep, uh, many of the most deep meditative experiences at the same time that we're talking. That uh, we can really have that uh, sense of speech and communication are not simply what um, second class spiritual practice. That we can actually, in the midst of speech, be coming from the depths of care and insight, selflessness, and so forth. And that we can actually experience you know, these quite deep states in the middle of speech. There, one doesn't require retreats and special situations to access this. That's something we, we can learn. And yet, um, speech practice is challenging. And the whole area of speech and communication is very, very, uh, can be a very difficult one in one's life. And we certainly can see in the larger world the presence of unskillful speech leading to all sorts of issues, all sorts of problems. Socrates, like 2,500 years ago, said, the misuse of language induces evil in the soul. <laughs> the mis, you know, unskillful speech. And another example of that is one of my favorite cartoons, I think it's from The New Yorker. There is an uh, image of uh, there's a woman sitting on a couch. She is talking to a man who is um, standing, who's taking notes, who seems to be something like a detective. Behind the couch is standing a police officer. Also behind the couch, one can see what seem to be um, legs with the feet sticking straight up, seeming to be connected with a body that is behind the couch. 
And the dialogue in the cartoon is from the woman who says, he misspoke, I misheard, shots rang out. Well, do you know that one, right? That's, it's so easily we can be triggered. Probably many of us or most of us in the last week can point to instances where that happened, right? Where there was some, something that didn't connect. We were triggered, something was misheard. There was uh, some kind of unskillful speech and there were interpersonal difficulties and so forth that we can see that happening uh, very, very easily. And even, in, even when there's a lot of um, spiritual practice, unless people have paid attention, I think, to speech and communication, you can have these wonderful people who, to use some slang, they mess up. Have wonderful people, you know, I, I can remember I remember uh, being at a retreat with Jack Cornfield, and he looked over the uh, group at the end of a retreat and he said, you look so beautiful. Of course you haven't opened your mouths yet. <laughs> and in a number of meditative communities uh, within the lineage of insight meditation, there have been challenges. For example, at the uh, monastery Amaravati in, the, uh, in England, and I think also at Abayagiri in Northern California, uh, they've, had, they've actually had challenges in their communication within a monastic community where people are meditating, and have meditative presence many hours a day, but they hadn't maybe devoted enough time to speech and they found difficulties arising and they wanted to bring in, what they chose to do was to bring in actually the discipline of nonviolent communication to complement some of their other tools. That it wasn't quite enough. And I've seen also being connected with Spirit Rock. I've seen at times, particularly when there's a conflict, not always very skillful speech. It's not necessarily a, uh, a focus. In fact, uh, Orrin and I, quite a number of years ago, like nine, eight or nine years ago, were invited to work with the Spirit Rock staff on issues of skillful speech. Uh, we were told that uh, because the training was not mandatory, those who really needed it did not come. <laughs> but what could we do? So very, very crucial area. And, uh, you know, just very easily we can find ourselves in unskillful speech. We can also know that skillful, caring speech can be so important and powerful. And that one person listening carefully, understanding, maybe showing uh, empathy, compassion, can totally change my mind state. Right, that someone who gets me in a, you know, maybe when I'm in a difficult situation can totally shift my consciousness. And skillful speech and even simply not even overtly speaking, but being uh, a good listener 
can make such a huge difference and can, you know, can, um, um, can transform conflicts. I think uh, prevent wars as well. So it's a very powerful uh, capacity. Again, particularly crucial, I think, in the practice, I think I would say, I imagine of all of us who are trying to find ways in this daily life to have the sense of practice. And it's not easy. Can I, it's not easy if we are seeing our, our spiritual practice as 15, 20, 30 minutes of meditation. How do we find ways to have that clarity of intention and sense of practice be there more in our lives? We've talked about that earlier. Speech practice plays a crucial role. And yet what we have found is that it's somewhat underdeveloped. You know, I think that you know, the retreats that we've been associated with are the first and probably only retreats at Spirit Rock on speech, as far as I know. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's something that I have, we have just felt drawn to both uh, offer and keep developing. And there, there are creative aspects of this as well. We're not simply, as I'll mention in a moment, we're not simply passing on something traditional. There's a lot of contemporary creativity to find ways to make this work that we'll, that we'll bring in at different times. So we can place the practices that we're doing within the intention to awaken, within the intention to bring our deepest wisdom and love and skillful action more and more to the surface, more and more to be the minds and hearts and bodies we live from. So it's a tall order, right? We live in a culture which is to say the least, uh, often seems to be encouraging distraction, right? Not so much mindfulness presence. And of course, in the contemporary world, there are a lot of tendencies which are leading to further polarization and even um, quite unskillful speech, you know, in high places and low places, so to speak, <laughs> right? That we, we know that, right? And so, actually being people who are grounded in skillful speech is, I think, one of the core capacities for making a difference in the world, to have that capacity. You know, one of the, you know, I, I remember once doing a uh, workshop. We had, a, we had a, a, a conference called Spiritual Activism uh, you know, some years ago, and I was asked to do a workshop, and I did a workshop, and... Uh, it was on, I think the topic was, what kind of training do contemporary spiritual activists need? What are the elements of the training? And before going into some of what I thought might be a way of responding to that question, I asked people, what are the issues which you find? What do you find difficult? The major one was that, especially with fellow activists, we often are very mean, angry, and unskillful in our speech. Interesting, right? And they, they uh, found that, even among people who are trying to help make the world a better place. That skillful speech communication was not, a, 
and I would say is not a well-developed part of the repertoire, right? So really, really crucial in so many areas. So we do this as part of the path of awakening. And awakening is this aspiration which uh, I think I and I think we would like to encourage us to really, um, in a sense, take seriously. That it's uh, that to really have the aspiration to develop uh, to a high degree our wisdom, again, our compassion, our love, our hearts, and our uh, capacity for embodied skillful action. You know, and this, the path always has two elements. It has the element of seeing what gets in the way of those beautiful qualities, and then also seeing how we can develop uh, beautiful qualities and positive qualities. And we, we can see traditionally that, the, that we have the model of the Buddha, who was, you know, was a being that was caught up in uh, confusion and various forms of unskillful action and thought and so forth, but developed and serves as a, a kind of model for the possibility. It was, it was a human being. Uh, again, when we took refuge in the Buddha, in a sense, we took uh, refuge. We found support in the notion that within ourselves, we have the capacity for awakening. And in, in the tradition, and I think in many spiritual traditions, it's taken that our nature, our deep nature is awake. And what prevents us from knowing that is more superficial and covers it over. You know, the metaphor is often used of the clouds that block the sun. The sun's always there. This is, this is a teaching, which you know, many of us have had a sense of that. Traditionally, the path to come to awakening was understood as having eight core factors. Now, this is the, the, uh, the noble eightfold path that was taught, taught by the Buddha. I think what's really important here is that these eight factors work uh, together with each other. Really crucial aspect. And so when we talk about speech practice, interestingly, speech is one of the eight factors. Isn't that cool? That uh, from 2,500 years ago, when the Buddha delineated the eight factors that help, that are the, what we develop to come to awakening, he mentioned two that had to do with wisdom, particularly, which was so-called right or wise view. The second was to do with aspiration, her intention, having you know, the clarity of intention. And I should say that the, the wise view is especially about uh, seeing what we want to develop and understanding the roots of suffering. Understanding better the roots of suffering and the roots of freedom. And it was expressed especially in terms of the famous teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Which is that the roots of what we can call suffering are a kind of reactivity where we 
push away or grab hold, a lack of the mind being at peace. We'll go into that in more, in more depth. And so, and then the uh, third through the fifth factors have to do with what we might call the ethical dimension, the, the dimension of action. And those were um, right livelihood or wise livelihood, and then speech comes in. And then the third of them is uh, more or less following the other ethical guidelines. It's called uh, wise action or right action. But interestingly, speech is one of the eight factors. So um, we might have the sense that back then the monks were, and nuns were just quiet all the time. But if you read the text, they were always being invited to dinner parties. Then there was a lot of talk going on. And actually there were times, you know, when you read the text, the Buddha was complaining that the speech practice had broken down. We have to work with this. There are conflicts developing, have to work with skillful speech. So skillful speech, one of the eight factors right there. You know, we may, again, we may have a certain mythologies about the core practice being silent, not so. Have to develop everything in the midst of interaction and speech. And then the uh, sixth through the eighth factors have to do more with meditation, their skillful effort, which is especially the effort to just be present and to come back if you've been lost or distracted and to cultivate uh, beneficial qualities. That's, that's what's the essence of skillful effort. And then there's, uh, there's mindfulness and there's also um, concentration, developing uh, uh, high degrees of concentration. Again, the key factor here is that all of these go together. That's sometimes lost in the popularization of mindfulness. Mindfulness is sometimes taken out of that context in our contemporary world. And people learn mindfulness, but they don't necessarily connect it with the other dimensions of learning. And that can be a problem. You know, that uh, it's possible to be mindful and do unethical things. For example, a burglar might benefit from learning mindfulness. Especially, especially if it's disconnected from ethics, which again, it, it often is. I remember once talking to someone who was bringing mindfulness into corporate settings and say, how do you bring ethics in? And you're teaching a mindfulness thing. That person said, huh? Not, not a good feeling. But the key that we'll be using here is that all these factors are intertwined. They all go together. And so we'll be seeing in, you know, in the course of the days more clearly, it's not so hard to see, how mindfulness is connected with skillful speech, you know, especially in tracking our minds. You know, that if we can, if we, that's why having a daily mindfulness practice is really crucial for wise speech. Wise speech is not just about following certain behavioral guidelines. It goes hand in hand with mindfulness. And so, you know, one of the tools that I often use is I'm at a meeting, I have a running mindfulness log, you know, just to notice what my mind state is. And you can do that with a log or just do it as you're going through the day, but to, have, to know with mindfulness, oh, my mind is pretty balanced, pretty content. That's helpful to know. Oh, my mind is getting agitated. You know, I would note in my mindfulness log sometimes, you know, getting tired, 
at a meeting, let's say. Sarcastic thoughts developing. <laughs> and the noting of that mind, with mindfulness of the sarcastic thoughts does what? It gives me actually some choice in whether I utter the thoughts. Right? So you can see mindfulness is crucial. Knowing what's happening with our mind. Developing metta. Developing loving kindness. Developing a kind heart. We'll see in a moment that, that bringing kindness to our speech is right there in the ancient tradition. And so developing our kind hearts in other practices, such as we'll be doing every late afternoon, is crucial. All the factors are together. Having wisdom about what leads to suffering and what leads to freedom, really crucial. All of the factors intertwined. Having more concentration so that we don't get as distracted. Distracted. So that's, that's what I think we want to suggest here, is that the... Um, Speech practice is an integral part of our training and it's interconnected with all the other dimensions of training and that we'll really want to keep uh, making those connections between the, the, different, uh, the different parts of our, um, of our training. The traditional way in which uh, speech practice was taught was especially through this more ethical uh, part of the Eightfold Path. And it was especially taught through offering uh, guidelines for skillful speech. And there are different formulations in the text. Now we'll be giving some handouts um, think at the end of the day, that gives some quotations. But the um, formulation of the ethical guidelines are a very crucial part of our speech practice. And this is, I think, the main resource that we really get from the uh, tradition, along with all the tools of mindfulness and developing the kind heart, that there, there are, in particular, four capacities or four, maybe I should say four guidelines for skillful or wise uh, speech. And those are first for the speech to be truthful. Secondly, for the speech to be helpful. And thirdly, for the speech to be coming out of a kind heart, caring, that can have different expressions. And then fourthly, that it be in some ways appropriate. And the Buddha was off, but talked about different aspects of this, including having good timing. You know, so the Buddha was, I like to think, was always going around to people saying, check your timing, check your timing, how's your timing, and so forth for, for speech. So let me, let me talk about each of these four, but maybe first let me read a, uh, this is a passage from the, from the suttas, from the discourses of the Buddha. This is the translation. Uh, and you can hear these, these qualities, these four aspects. How does an untrue person speak as an untrue person? I think I don't, it might be a problematic translation, but it's basically saying, how does an unskillful, a person unskillful in speech speak unskillfully? Okay? 
Here, I'll, I'll say an unskillful person speaks false speech, malicious speech, that's not helpful, harsh speech, that's not caring, and gossip. Again, using gossip in the sense of distracted speech. Um, and how does a skillful person speak as a skillful person? Here, a skillful person abstains from false speech, from malicious speech, from harsh speech, and from gossip. So I'll talk a little bit about the four of these. And, um, and I think we'll maybe do, do uh, a practice together. So truthfulness is really key. And you know we can see that it's very central to all of our communication. Sometimes it's taken to be the most important of these guidelines. In the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, there's a, uh, an understanding that in extreme situations, people can sometimes violate some of the ethical precepts. And I won't go into that so much, but that, you know, sometimes it's actually conceivable that one can hurt another being if the, on balance, something very important is done. Again, there's some complicated text there, but it's said that the one guideline which one should never violate is that of uh, being truthful. So it's taken to be very, very central. And the, the guidelines function in two ways. These four guidelines, which we will be working with, and one, one of the invitations, for example, for this evening when we go home, will be to work with these four guidelines in the evening, in the morning. Really to have a strong intention, work with them. And so they're important in two main ways. One of them, and this is true for all of the guidelines, the guidelines are important. They give us a sense of um, ways to act. They give us a way to uh, guide our own behavior. In other words, let me act in these ways, be truthful, be helpful, and so forth. And they, they also are, in a sense, um, potentially wake-up calls that if we take, if we have a vow to develop in those ways, we can notice when we violate the, um, the guideline. And so when we work with these, it's almost like a light bulb goes on in our, in our minds when we are not being truthful, when we are not being helpful, when we work with these guidelines. And they can be wonderful to work with over a stretch of time. I once worked with a group a small group where we worked with these guidelines for six months. We did, you know, more or less one guideline a month. And then we came back and brought them together, I think, for two months. And it was powerful, you know, and I, during that time, I put the guidelines right next to my telephone. And so someone would ring and I would say to myself, truthful, helpful, good heart, good timing, hello, <laughs> right? And you can work with them like this. They can be very, very creative. So they, they both help to guide our speech in this case. And they also serve as um, wake-up calls in terms of mindfulness. That when we take them, all of a sudden we'll notice, oh, I'm not being truthful. What's going on for me? You know, and they can be uh, a starting point for inquiry. What's happening? You know? I'm, you know, I'm exaggerating, you know, what's, am I trying to create a certain self-image? What's going on, right? And so we can inquire. 
And for many of us, we may not have overt lies. That's for each of us to, to see. But for many of us, the actually the most interesting part of this first guideline may be to look at all sorts of ways that we are not being truthful, but we're not overtly lying. You know, what are some of those ways that we do that? Well, exaggeration. Uh, what? Omission. Uh, Half-truths. Uh, or maybe not wanting to talk about some, some area, not being fully truthful in a certain way, not disclosing, kind of omission in a certain way. And so we can work with this and uh, we can work with this guideline and the other guideline in those ways. You know, why, why is lying an issue? I think we, we know many of us can see that very easily in our lives that when we can't trust someone to speak the truth, that trust and community suffers, right? We can't really, uh, in a sense, have a normal human relationship with that, with that person. We can't really, uh, we can't trust what that person will say. And uh, another, you know, if, if we are not telling the truth ourselves, then it can be very, it can very much complicate our minds and even agitate the minds. If I'm not telling the truth, it's an enormous amount of energy to remember what I said to whom, <laughs> right? If I'm not just simply telling the truth all the time, if I'm sometimes not telling the truth, it's very, um, you know, it's a lot of energy and one's always tripping up. You know, you're always saying something that you didn't say to someone else, or to someone and so forth. So it's a lot of energy. It's hard for the mind to be quiet when we're not telling the truth. And of course it can enhance uh, often a sense of separate self, self-image and so forth and can can really be something, something to look at. I won't go so much into this, but each of these guidelines have a personal meaning. They also have an interpersonal meaning and they actually have a social meaning. Like what happens when truthfulness is not, the, is not encouraged on a larger social level? What happens when the government lies? you know, or politicians lie. Um, what does that do to the, as it were, the body politic? Well, I think we're seeing a lot of the results of that. You know, it's, it's difficult. So I think all of these guidelines and speech practice itself can be understood on a personal, interpersonal, and a more collective level. And there are aspects, as I mentioned, if one's an activist, one goes into the, those larger, larger venues. The second guideline is helpfulness. And again, this is something we can look at and to see whether that's there for you. You know, one of the things that's interesting is that we can see is that, oh, I'm pretty good with truthful, truthfulness. You know, this is what I found when, in those six months. I found, I looked at the four guidelines and I found I was pretty good most of the time with truthfulness, pretty good with helpfulness, but I didn't always come from a kind heart. Often when I was busy trying to be efficient, get things done, right? I could be helpful, truthful, but let's get this conversation over so I can get to the next one. Or, you know, uh, same thing with emails. And 
we are certainly including electronic communication within this province. One of the practices which I, I did at one point uh, when I was uh, right after doing a loving kindness retreat for about five weeks and uh, I actually uh, started to do a loving kindness practice with every email. And there are ways you could go into your email and just say truthful, helpful, good heart, good timing, and then answer the email. It slows things down. I did this with loving kindness practice. I would actually say four loving kindness phrases with every email. And I've done this pretty much for over 10 years. And it can change things, right? That's so why it takes so long to hear that. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, anyway, we'll get, we'll get into it later. You have to. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, more to say that what we're talking about does include electronic communications, that the scope of the retreat includes that, right? And that, there, that we, can, we can share different techniques. So helpfulness, we want to uh, ask, am I being helpful? What's my motivation? Where am I coming from? Am I wanting to uh, really do something negative? And if I find that I have the intent to harm or in some ways, if I'm in a reactive place, if I'm reacting with aversion, it might be skillful just not to speak at that point. So there's a very big role in our speech practice, particularly related to these guidelines, towards refraining from speaking at certain times. Right? And that's part of the art form of skillful speech, is knowing when it's wise not to speak. Right? Very clearly, often it is. If I'm really gripped with reactivity, it could be, you know, it could be wise not to speak. And we'll be exploring some concrete ways that if I'm finding that way, I can still be skillful and saying, you know, I'm feeling kind of reactive now. Would you be willing to talk later about this? Something like that. That I can have, because the mindfulness, this is key, the mindfulness gives us some degree of non-reactivity. When I'm mindful of being reactive, mindfulness of reactivity is not reactive. So if we have mindfulness, we're always gonna have 10 or 20% that's centered, more centered. From that 10 or 20%, we can act. That can be the pivot. Even if 80% of me is consumed with reactivity, anger, upset, right? I can access that 10 or 20% and let that be a pivot, especially in saying, Let's talk about that, talk about that later. Another point about bringing in this aspect of helpfulness is it starts to point to the way that these four factors all have to be there together. It's not like if I'm truthful, that's enough. Or if I'm helpful, that's enough. All four have to be together. In fact, we can be truthful, helpful, kind of have a beautiful heart, have bad timing, and make a total mess. And so, you know, very specifically, we know that we can be very truthful at times and have the intention to harm, right? We call it, sometimes call that venting. Or we know that there are, again, modes of speech 
where we're actually truthful and it can feel initially like skillful speech where we can fool ourselves, but it's not really because it doesn't have the other three aspects. And again, we can see that a lot in probably in our, you know, in our communities or in the public world. The third dimension is to come out of a kind heart. And this is where we'll particularly connect with our loving kindness practice or different ways of developing the heart practice. Compassion could be others, gratitude, joy, and so forth. And that we'll um, be practicing explicitly um, as a formal practice um, late afternoon. In fact, after the talk and discussion and so forth, we'll have a short walking period, then we'll come back and do loving kindness practice. Uh, you know, metta, many of you know, is the word in the Pali language. And it's, it actually is literally, loving kindness is kind of an awkward translation. It can be better translated as, you know, kind of warm, expansive friendliness. It's basically approaching our interactions with a basic goodwill and warmth and friendliness. That's what we're aspiring towards. And again, we have that aspiration and then we notice with our mindfulness where that's not the case, where the, where the warmth isn't there or where I'm caught in aversion or anger or whatever. And I can work with it. You know, but we have that as uh, an aspiration. And so we try when we're in the grips of, of anger and we can't be skillful. Sometimes it's possible to be angry and to be quite skillful, especially when we uh, sort of have a certain degree of self-reference and we even have the energy. We'll we'll explore this later in the retreat, maybe in the last part of the retreat. We can have anger and be, and more or less own it and say, you know, I'm really angry about this. And I can say that in a way which doesn't necessarily attack the person. There's a lot, there's a lot there that we'll look at, I think we often have a confusion in our culture between anger and aggression and think they're the same. They are not necessarily the same, even if they're often linked in some causal way. So it's actually possible to be angry and still connect that with care. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an advanced form of practice, but it's possible. And we'll bring that up more later. So we want to see where, you know, this is again a guideline where we want to see where there's some where there's some kind of aversion, where there's some kind of reactivity, where, where that loving kindness is hard. And again, loving kindness can be such um, a, a way of changing a situation, right? That, you know, some words of care can be transformative, you know? And uh, I was uh, at one point developing a talk on skillful speech and I was talking to my mother and, you know, we were just talking about that. And her mind went instantly back to something which happened 10 years ago or 10 years before, which was just a 30-second moment of warm speech in a tense situation mm-hmm. that actually was totally transformative. It was actually with someone who was once a teacher of mine named Robert Lifton, who is a psychiatrist who's um, really, a, really a great man in many ways, has been an activist, psychiatrist, done a lot of work on social issues. He coined the phrase psychic numbing. He did studies of what happened with the dropping of the atomic bombs in Japan. And he's been also uh, very active in terms of um, speaking up about sort of the 
psychology of genocide and very, you know, very active. And he was, he was giving a talk and someone asked a question and it was really clear that the person had totally misunderstood him and almost like a groan went up over the hall. You know? And uh, Robert Lifton, then instead of saying, oh, you know, you really didn't understand me, I was meaning something else, he, he went to this directly empathic, compassionate response. He said, oh, I really know how you could think that. You know, uh, it's, really, it's really interesting where he went. And then he, he just engaged her in this really heartfelt way that let him over time come back to actually say what his point was. But he didn't put this person down and he, was, he had the qualities of empathy and compassion. Again, we'll bring those out in the course of the retreat. And that minute had such an impact on my mom that 10 years later, it was what immediately came to mind, had a, such an influence on her. And maybe, maybe you think of similar situations yourself where, where there was some kind of warm uh, intervention. So the last of the uh, guidelines is um, what we might call appropriateness. It's asking the question, is this skillful speech right now? And that can come under a few different uh, uh, aspects. One would be timing. Is this a good time to speak? Continually asking that is really, really crucial for our speech. Again, we can have everything else in place and it's not the right time. So again, we may need to check that out with another person and keep on asking that question. Is this the right time? You know, in the, in the um, teachings of the Buddha, the guideline of appropriateness was often about what's usually translated as gossip. I think it's more about distracted speech. You know, I mean, gossip's uh, kind of a, maybe a controversial word in some quarters, because on one level it just means the news of the community, right? But I think it's particular, the translator probably was pointing to the ways that speech can be distracted and just basically be indulging with uh, another person or persons in all sorts of ways that we're not following the first three guidelines, right? We can just be uh, sharing, complaining, judging, being unkind in ways that somehow at least in some sense, feel good. And that, that's what was being called into question, sort of distracted speech or speech which is just sort of going on and on, being driven especially by reactivity, right? Or just confusion. That's what's being pointed to. And again, we can, we can, ask, that, uh, we can ask that of ourselves, what's, what's skillful. And so uh, we can practice in a lot of different ways with these guidelines. Again, we could take them, and some of us may want to take, the, take, you know, take one guideline for a week, take one guideline for a month. You can do that with our practice. You know, we'll lay out, uh, towards the end of the retreat, a follow-up curriculum that could be a way in your own lives to keep this all going. And I'm going to try to have uh, a few follow-up sessions, you know, in, probably in Berkeley at my house, if there are a sufficient number interested that would let us keep it going. We find that a lot of this, we can get a lot of great training in a retreat. The follow-up's also crucial, right? And so there are ways that we can work with these guidelines in a disciplined way. One guideline, you know, a month. One guideline a week. 
And when you do it and remember the intention in the morning, you know, we'll be again be doing that uh, at the end of today and be inviting you. And the key is to come back to the intention. Again, intention so crucial. Can we come back to the intention? Can you come back mid-evening? <laughs> I say, okay, truthful, helpful, good heart, good timing. Yeah. What were you saying? <laughs> right? and, and come back to that. And, and maybe come to it uh, first thing in the morning before you come here. To work with this in, in our intentions can be really, really crucial. Again, you could have it uh, be by your telephone, have the guidelines by your telephone. Uh, one person I worked with in difficult conversations put the guidelines on her hand. Particularly, she was talking to a teenage daughter. She would talk with her looking at these guidelines. <laughs> right. I would have the guidelines on a sheet of paper in meetings. You can do that. I actually was uh, able, in, uh, I, was, I was once on a uh, graduate faculty for, for some years, and you know, these were mostly psychologists, and communication was sometimes okay, sometimes not okay. And so um, we had a committee to develop some guidelines for skillful speech among the, the teachers, right? And uh, they, uh, you know, our committee suggested that in meetings we follow these guidelines. And the whole faculty agreed to it. And so every meeting that we had, they asked me to come before the group for five or 10 minutes, talk about the guidelines, and we had them up on a big poster board right before the whole group. And so it, I think it made a difference. You know, the people who were collectively known to be, how should I say, less skillful, they would often preface their comments by, I'm not sure this is gonna really follow the guidelines, but, <laughs> right? And, but it actually uh, moderated their speech. So these can be group guidelines. Bring in, you know, put them on the you know, chat forums or whatever. You can bring it on the internet. You know, these can be very helpful for, uh, for group coherence. So this is one of the, this is one of the treasures that we get from the tradition. You know, another aspect of the tradition that is not always explicit, I just want to mention briefly, then I'll, I think, open things up. One of the aspects of um, practice, I think that was implied in the tradition, is that there would be relative mindfulness during speaking. But I don't find, and Oren, I don't know if you've looked more carefully than me, but I don't find explicit passages where the Buddha says, be mindful during speaking and here's a way to do it. Do you, have you found any explicit passages like that? And, and so we've been, we've been very much, uh, I think, inspired to try to find ways to bring some sense of inner mindfulness into our speech practice. And I'll just mention it in somewhat briefly now, but again, it's something that we'll come back to a number of different times. We can talk about it in different ways. We can try to be present during our speaking. We can be here, we can be with our bodies. We can try to be mindful at the same time that we're listening. Can I track whether I'm being reactive? This is not an easy capacity to develop. You know, when we find, I have found working with groups over the years 
that it can be very helpful to develop some body awareness. We, we're going to be stressing body awareness quite a lot because when you have more body awareness, we're not so dominated by the automatic mind. That's, that helps with our speech practice. That's why cultivation of mindfulness, cultivation even of concentration, but also of body awareness, that which lets us actually be able to be present maybe in a situation. I try when I'm giving talks to stay aware of my body and to speak out, to, to have the speaking still happen. Not an easy or a beginning practice, but we'll be trying to emphasize that. Some of you will be interested in that and excited or inspired and want to be developing that. One way to develop it is simply to really to encourage a way of being um, in the body, being present, doing yoga, doing walking meditation, having more of the awareness, having it be more uh, possible simply to be with the body, be, be present without the mind being so dominant. So let me, let me finish by, uh, I think I'll read a uh, short passage from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. This is his, his summary of speech practice. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and not to criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words that can cause division or discord that can cause the family or community to break. I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. And this will, that passage, there's a lot, we could unpack that in a lot of ways. Some, some, some of the lines were really asking for a little more clarification. We, we'll, we'll give a handout at the end of the day that'll have that quotation and a few others on it. Maybe, let me invite you to uh, right now just sit quietly for a moment. And see if there's anything present for you where you might have a question or a request for clarification or maybe expansion on a particular theme or anything which has come up during the whole day. It could be about the mindfulness practice, the sitting or the walking, anything which would be helped by some uh, clarification. And see if there's anything that comes up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.